Okay, good evening everybody and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, uh, and uh, I am glad to be back here this evening. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little later than usual. I've had a bit of a, a one of those evenings at home uh, where, uh, yeah, so I just saw you guys kind of debating about the whole toddler-teenager thing uh, from a parenting perspective, uh, you know, and I have to admit, Toddlers are definitely harder. Uh, it's just different. It's just different. You know, if this were, uh, you know, if this were like 10 years ago, I'd be late to class because I was like tucking kids in. Right. And now I'm late to class because of issues with homework and the fantasy football draft. So, you know, it's just like, you know, parenting continues. <laughs> the issues change. Parenting continues. Um, but anyway, there we are. So. But we're back. We're back uh, and uh, glad to be back. Well, the two things I wanted to uh, mention before today's class. One, just to mention again what I've mentioned before, uh, which is that um, we are having our next moot, uh, our next, which is officially a regional moot, but of course it's open to everybody because it's, it's uh, going to be online. Uh, and this is Middle Moot uh, 2020. Uh, virtually hosted from Kansas City, uh, and uh, it is uh, uh, it, it, the theme of that is hope. The heart of hope is what the theme of the uh, the moot is called. That's going to be Saturday, October tenth. Uh, so I strongly recommend that. I think we're going to have a great time there. Uh, it's been great seeing people sign up for that. So just wanted to invite folks uh, to join us there. Um, so uh, anyway, that's uh, that's that's my quick external announcement. Now, an internal announcement. I saw uh, uh, folks in Discord chatting about this before we began. Um, uh, Tony was telling me that he has caught up with us. Tony Mead, of course, has been doing our uh, summaries, our uh, episode summaries, been kind of going through and, and, and making outlines of uh, what we covered uh, during all 153 previous episodes. Uh, and after a year and a half and 600 hours of work. Tony has finished uh, the work. Tony, thank you for all of that wonderful work that you've done. And it now, of course, brings it back, obviously, to the question that we've been, we've talked about a couple times before about exactly what, um, exactly what we do now, uh, as, you know, we definitely want to bring forward these ideas uh, and uh, do something, uh, some kind of e-publishing based thing uh, that we would want to do. I think there's too much stuff uh, from the material that we have been generating together here um, to sort of let go. Uh, and we're, you know, we, we've been wanting to do this, planning to do this for some time. Uh, this has been gaining a little bit more momentum, not only with Tony's wonderful work, but also as we, once we finished book one, that was kind of the first obvious moment, you know, where we might think about, um, you know, we might think about uh, going back and doing like a book one thing, right? Whatever it is that we do. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we'll see. I, I, I'm I'm still open to suggestions. Uh, one, you know, I've been kind of simmering this a little bit on the back burner. Um, 
I think that a wiki might be a good idea. That was a suggestion that was made. And so for us to make an Exploring the Lord of the Rings wiki where we uh, that would enable us to kind of have more of a sort of hodgepodge by topic. Right. So that people could uh, make it a little bit more easy to search. Right. If people wanted to go through and choose by passage, by, um, uh, you know, by uh, by topic. That's. uh Definitely something that we could do. I'm not sure, though. Here's the here's my well, not objection to. Here's to me the downside of a wiki is that, of course, a wiki would only have disjointed bits. Right. Um, And one of the things that I think would be really cool if we could do um, is to do. uh, Ideally, we'd want to do both. Right. We would want to be able to have. So if somebody wanted to ask a particular question or search for a particular thing or, um, you know, sort of like try to answer a particular question or, you know, see what our answers were or suggestions were about a particular question, um, then they could go back and search by that. So we would want to have those kinds of isolated bits able to be drawn out. Right. But at the same time, it seems to me that one of the so that's one really important function, but it's only one. The other really important function, right, is to do what we don't really have the chance to do during class, which is to start to kind of put things together and form the bigger picture. Um, I, I, I forget. Somebody keeps mentioning this, and I don't remember who it is, uh, but somebody in class keeps mentioning that once we finish Lord of the Rings at the, you know, in years, whenever that comes, we should go back and do it again fast. Like go back and do sort of an overview in order to kind of see the things that you don't see when you go at this really, really slow pace. And I, you know, I'm not saying that I think that that would be, that that's a terrible idea, but I do think, and I, I, I mean, obviously I acknowledge that going this slowly, we don't see the big picture as we go, but what we can do is take and put those things together, right? We have all of the individual data, right? And we can begin to, sh- to see the patterns. That's that's the process, right? That's how we, um, that's, that's how I would always do it. I mean, um, you know, when I was, um, like when I was working on my Hobbit book, for instance, you know, step one is to go through and to make notes on the whole book, right? Go through and jot down, you know, my thoughts and idea and analysis of each bit, right? And then, Look at the patterns, right? What are the patterns that form from that, and how can we kind of put these things together? Um, so, yeah, I uh, I am thinking that a wiki doesn't give us a great amount of flexibility to be able to do those sort of big picture stuff. No, maybe not. Maybe there are ways that that could be kind of integrated too. Um, I don't know. But so exactly what form this takes, my thought is that both of those two ends, uh, that is to both be bringing uh, bringing some of this stuff together. I mean, think about the ideas that we've been sort of tracking, right? Like things like the sentience of the ring or the, the way in which we see people interacting, uh, uh, ring bearers interacting with the ring, right? Um, and that kind of thing. Um, there are a number of things that we've been following and we're going to continue to be following as we go through the whole text. Well, we're going to want the opportunity, right, to go back and look at all of that stuff and put it all together uh, and show what it really adds up to. So we'd need that and we'd want the bits, right, the sort of searchable bits, the particular questions or particular passages and things. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe I guess, maybe the thing to do is to do that in stages, right? So the first stage is what Tony's done to kind of take the 
you know, the body of, you know, audio video material and convert that into written, uh, you know, to do the, the work that he, you know, the wonderful work that he's already done uh, in extracting that. So we have that kind of raw text to be able to search through and organize. Um, and if the first step were to do the bits, right, the kind of the individual, but to kind of curate the individual bits and organize those, um, then after we do that, maybe would be the time to then be thinking about adding the other thing on top of that. I'm brainstorming here. This is what I'm thinking about. Um, so maybe the next step would be to form something like a wiki, right? We should do that. We should do that. So um, I will get back to you guys uh, about sort of the next steps there. Uh, and we will... Um, uh, we will see. We will see what we can do uh, from there. I, I think. I think you know there are definitely some some next steps. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to be implemented. I'm kind of. I didn't even know we were going to talk about this tonight. Tony just uh, uh, texted me about this a little while back, so uh, um, uh, I'm uh, um, thinking all, all off the cuff here. But I do think that there's definitely stuff that we can do there. I have some ideas. And I got to think them through a little bit more. Uh, uh, maybe Tony, I'll be in touch with you, and we'll sort of see what we can come up with, and then we'll invite other people to help out. And I uh, would still really love to see this be uh, a community project there. So, okay, we're uh, we're moving along. So Nancy was asking, is the schedule of things for the fall fundraising campaign up yet? Not yet, Nancy, but soon. That is coming soon. Uh, I am. Um, I have been very involved in a very large and important project behind the scenes, uh, which I am almost at the very end of after a great deal of work. Um, and so as soon as I get that out the door, I'm going to be doing that. So um, anyway, that's... Um, so, but, but Nancy, that's coming. That's coming very soon. It is almost fall fundraising season here at Signum. Um, as usual, we're planning to start the, uh, the fundraising campaign uh, on Bilbo's birthday, uh, as we always do, which falls on a Tuesday this year, I believe. So we'll be able to celebrate that on a class night. Uh, so that'll be great. So, yep, yeah, that is coming soon, Nancy. All right. Well, let us get back into the text here uh, and look at the fallout. Um, uh, the fallout from uh, Legolas's announcement of Gollum's departure, or rather, the fallout of Gollum's departure itself, and what it what it means. Um, so let's uh, get back. We, you, you remember we got kind of halfway through this passage last time, um, where. Legolas was explaining... Well, I didn't yet explain what happened, right? Um, and the main th uh, thing that I would go on to emphasize uh, about his... Um, uh, about his speech there, the second paragraph uh, of this passage, uh, is when he... First of all, I mean, I, I just want to highlight again. We talked about this some last week, but I want to highlight again... Gandalf bade us hope still for his cure, and we had not the heart to keep him ever in dungeons under the earth. Um, why did Gandalf tell them to keep him, right? Yes, they wanted to keep him out of trouble. Yes, the, but Gandalf wasn't primarily motivated 
um, by uh, his fear of Gollum or his concern about what Gollum might do either on his own account or in league with Mordor, right? Notice that, again, it's Aragorn who speaks up. And when Aragorn does speak up, remember Aragorn was the one who was just like focusing on pity for Gollum, right? Aragorn's reaction is, we shall all rue it bitterly, I fear, right? The escape of Gollum is going to be some level of disaster. Maybe it'll only be a small disaster. Maybe it'll be a huge disaster, right? This is going to be really bad. The suggestion to me, when Legolas says, but Gandalf bade us hope still for his cure, um, Gandalf bade them to guard the creature day and night, right? So again, it's not like Gandalf didn't take seriously his confinement, right? But it does seem the business about hoping still for his cure that get that the, you know, I'm trying to kind of from, from what Legolas says here, sort of reconstruct Gandalf's last conversation, you know, with Thranduil and Legolas and the, the elves of Mirkwood, right? What are Gandalf's standing instructions for them? Um, and the two things that we know for sure that Gandalf told them were, were one guard him day and night, right? Don't let Gollum out of your sight. And secondly, hope still for his cure. Um, and that's really interesting to me. Was Gan- so, so again, part of one of the conclusions that I draw from that is that Gandalf is not primarily afraid of Gollum. I'm not sure. Well, no, I'll go further than that. I'm quite sure, actually, that his reaction is not Aragorn's reaction. Right, We shall all rue it bitterly, I fear. That is ill news indeed. We shall all rue it bitterly, I fear. We will hear Gandalf um, striking a very different note in his response. Right, um, Gandalf is just hoping for Gollum's cure. Out of pity? Well, yes. I would certainly think so. Um, but also, maybe more than that. Aranas, I think in part, we can understand it that way, um, that if Gollum can be cured, then Bilbo and Frodo should be curable, right? Gollum is at the very least, Aranas, as you suggest, a kind of um, a kind of test case, right? Yeah, Tony was also suggesting that uh, um, his hope for Gollum is driven by his hope for Bilbo and Frodo. There's a certain amount of responsibility on Gandalf. Uh, that is, he knows. He is... Potentially throwing Frodo under the bus, right? Um, you know, here, take this radioactive thing and, you know, hold to it. And we'll just hope that it doesn't kill you, right? Uh, we'll hope that you can survive this experience. Um, he knows that he's doing that. Um, and there's some responsibility there on Gandalf's part. Um, and uh, so, yeah. I, I do suspect that it has something to do with Bilbo and Frodo. Um, but um, but I also wonder, Sam, yeah, I, I, I think there could also be some, um, uh, there might still be some, some other angle there, right? I mean, Gollum, should Gollum be able to be cured? Um, then he could be, I, you know, I don't know if Gandalf would, actually hope to make him into an ally exactly, but but there could probably at least be other things he could tell them. I mean, how many how many 
people have live who can say what's going on inside Baradur right now, right? How many people have been inside Baradur uh, and come out have they heard from, right? I mean, like, theoretically, at least, right, that's got to be sort of useful. Um, but, um, so yeah, exactly, as Gilgonthir just said, Gollum's been in the depths of Mordor and seen things. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's even on a purely practical basis, right, there's, um, uh, there's a, a some reason right there to uh, to to want that, um, yeah yeah. Um, but I certainly agree, JJ. I'm not at all trying to say that I don't think that pity for Gollum himself plays a big part of it. I think that it does, um, and just as I mean, even Aragorn, whose uh, feelings are a little bit more sort of, I mean, he's a little bit more personally fed up with Gollum, right? Uh, still bears the marks of his teeth. Um, but even he, of course, you know, his earlier speeches were marked pr- um, primarily uh, by uh, uh, by pity for Gollum. So I'm sure that plays a part too. But anyway, that's not what I wanted to talk about. The thing that I wanted to talk about in this paragraph is when Legolas says, um, we fear that the prisoner had aid from others and that more is known of our doings than we could wish. Okay? Now, we'll come back to that, because we don't have anything else other than that statement to go on. Um, but I just wanted to kind of flag that, because we're going to want to come back to that uh, in just a little bit. But before we do that, let's go on and look at the latter part of this that we didn't really get to. Um, the near quarrel, right, uh, when Glowen is upset about Legolas saying that they had not the heart to keep him ever in dungeons under the earth, where he would fall back into his old black thoughts. You were less tender to me, said Glowen with a flash of his eyes, as old memories were stirred of his imprisonment in the deep places of the Elven King's halls. Now come, said Gandalf. Pray do not interrupt, my good Glowen. That was a regrettable misunderstanding long set right. If all the grievances that stand between elves and dwarves are to be brought up here, we may as well abandon this council. Um, okay, so this is one of the things that I find so fascinating about this exchange. Well, okay, so, yeah, Anger says it's not even remotely the point, but how were they set right? Uh, Presumably in the, like, after the Battle of Five Armies, essentially, um, we don't know the details, right? Like, did the, was there some kind of compensation given? Was there some sort of apology issued uh, from one to another? Mutual apology? How, how, did, that, how did that happen uh, exactly? Um, so, well, let me just go ahead and talk about the thing that I want to talk about. Um, I was kind of thinking of postponing it and not talking about it first, but I'm going to. Um, that is, there's sort of like the metatextual, my metatextual response to this, and then there's like an intratextual response to this, right? The metatextual response to this is that this to me is a really interesting moment in the writing of the Lord of the Rings, right? In sort of Lord of the Rings history, because the Hobbit is awkward, right? Um, there are actually not very many places in the Lord of the Rings where the plot events of The Hobbit 
are explicitly recalled. I mean, there's the finding of the ring, obviously, and Gollum, of course. Um, you know, but of course, remember that moment, the finding of the ring, the riddle game with Gollum, and the the whole, and especially the ending of the Gollum sequence, has already been annexed by the Lord of the Rings, right? Tolkien rewrote it from the Lord of the Rings perspective. Um, so the new chapter five gets referred to quite a bit, right? During the Lord of the Rings. Because the new chapter five of The Hobbit is in a sense native to the Lord of the Rings. It's derived from the Lord of the Rings, not the other way around, right? It does not inspire the Lord of the Rings. It's derived from it. Um, so that connection is pretty close. But accepting that, if we remove all the Gollum and Ring stuff, and we think instead of the rest of the story of The Hobbit, and especially some of the, like, world-building stuff in The Hobbit, um, there are many things... Um, uh, there are many things that um, we can see that he's kind of distanced himself from in The Hobbit, right? Whether it's the stone giants, right? Who don't get my giants. He's decided against giants, as we saw in our Mythgard Academy classes when we were looking at this. He didn't originally, right? Giants were very prominent in his early ideas of what was going to be happening. Um, they, they were playing a pretty big role in the sequel to The Hobbit when he was writing it. Um, and then even after the story grew and changed, the giants still stuck around and they were there until, uh, of course, Treebeard turned into an ent and ceased to be a giant. And at that point, giants were completely removed. He didn't change that in The Hobbit, right? But we kind of, it's one of those things in The Hobbit that we're kind of like implicitly ask not to think about. The Lord of the Rings doesn't invite us to think about that. Same as like some of the comments that are made about goblins, right? Um, still being around and being responsible for, you know, canon and uh, probably, you know, the H-bomb and things like that, right? Um, so that's, you know, uh, again, another kind of example. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, so... In the Arkenstone, yeah, Tony, exactly. There's the Arkenstone. Nobody, nobody talks about the Arkenstone anymore, right? Um, uh, yeah, there's um, there's lots of there's lots of things there, right? There's lots of um, uh, issues with um, uh, with the Hobbit. Some references to the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are merely um, atmospheric, right? Like, I'm thinking, for instance, of the reference that Merry and Pippin make to Bilbo's descriptions of Mirkwood when they get to the eaves of Fangorn, right? And they compare and contrast what they see in Fangorn with uh, what Bilbo reported of Mirkwood. There's a moment where we're invited to recall specifically a, a, a something uh, from, um, from The Hobbit within the context of the Lord of the Rings. Um, but it's not really a plot connection. Again, it's kind of an atmospheric connection. Now, Glowin's presence from the beginning was a direct connection, right? And we were... Um, so we've been invited to think about 
the next stages, right? We've been invited. But see, the difference that I would make, again, if we go back to the conversation between Frodo and Glowin at dinner that we talked about before, what we see there primarily is not like a plot connection exactly between this and something that happened. Instead, it's like sequel material, right? The storylines, the characters of The Hobbit are still here in The Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, those who survived are still here. Um, and things have happened, and it's been, you know, a good deal of time has passed. So from Glowen, we learn how have things changed and developed in The Lonely Mountain, right? And so we hear the later story of Balin, of course, very significantly here in the uh, in the council. And, you know, Glowen tells of how things have grown and changed in The Lonely Mountain. But again, that's not a direct link back to a plot point. Exactly. Right? That's continuing the plot into, you know, continuing the story, building a new story. Right? We did have the stone trolls. Right? Yeah. Again, I'm not saying that he's, like, forgetting the Hobbit or he's asking us to forget the Hobbit, but this kind of thing. Right? When Glowen brings up the imprisonment um, in the halls of the Elven King, uh, we are being forcibly reminded... Right, like, this almost forces us to really sort of reconcile the, not just like generally like a character who existed, but a thing that happened in the context of the Hobbit story, and to reconcile it with the Lord of the Rings story, right? And the characters who are still there in the Lord of the Rings. Um, do you see what I mean by that? Um, do you see the, the difference between this point and some of those other points that I was talking about here? Um, here's the reason why this interests me so much. It interests me because... I think if I'd been talking, I'd have been tempted to gloss over this particular link. Because the way that the Wood Elves are depicted in The Hobbit is kind of different, right? The elves have changed a little bit. Um, not in the way that a lot of people want to say, not in that they don't sing tra la la anymore, because they still do. And I know that was the Rivendell elves. And I still believe that Gorfindel uh, leads tra la la choruses when he's not attending councils and uh, rescuing travelers on the road. Um, but um, uh, I... The way that the Wood Elves act, their woodland feasts, their vanishing, their kidnapping of Thorin, um, their casting of Bilbo into an enchanted sleep, the drunken revels uh, in the, you know, that enables the escape, um, the sort of petty vindictiveness of the Elven King and his greed. Um, there's a whole lot in that story, which fits perfectly well in the Hobbit world, in the kind of fairy tale world that the Hobbit is inhabiting, right? But which aren't quite as comfortable uh, in the world of the Lord of the Rings. And in particular, um, things are, I don't know, like I said, things have kind of moved up in the world since then. Things have changed, things have developed. And so, but. Um, Glowen's recollection of the untenderness uh, of the Wood Elves to the dwarf 
captives in The Hobbit really forces us to think of the continuity of the story there. Um, and uh, I'm not sure the effect of it. I'm not sure the effect of it. Um, Glowen's comment. Gandalf cuts him off. Legolas isn't allowed to respond, right? I I kind of grudge that, right? I kind of wish Gandalf hadn't interrupted. I mean, I see his point. We need to stay focused here, right? Um, uh, it's probably not a good idea to allow the, all the grievances that stand between elves and dwarves to be brought up in the council. Um, agreed. Agreed. Uh, he's certainly tr- uh, correct about that. But why? Right? The way that Aragorn talks about the Wood Elves. How came the folk of Thranduil to fail in their trust? Well, from the Elven King that we get to know in The Hobbit, would anyone be shocked? He doesn't seem like the most trustworthy guy. Um, in one way and another, like not only does he not seem completely honorable, that seems almost even a bit of an understatement, but um, but his people are a little flighty, right? I mean, you know, like the butler and the guard, right? It's, I mean, you could say like, you know, how came the folk of Thranduil to fail in their trust? You could flip that back to Aragorn and say, how came anybody to trust the Wood Elves with a prisoner, right? I mean, the Wood Elves are now 0 for 2. They have never, in record, successfully held a single prisoner, right? As far as we know from the content of this story, there is a 100% escape rate. So if you get incarcerated, just ask to be transferred to Mirkwood, because clearly that's the place to be held in prison. Um, You know, I... But again, so Aragorn is asking us to believe... Right, that it's some kind of deviation uh, for them to fail in this, um, and um, <laughs> yeah, they're over fifteen, exactly. Green Great Dragon, that's it. Um, uh, so again, so again, so that's why like, two paragraphs up, I feel like there's some retconning going on, right? Like I'm being invited. Uh, to kind of suspend disbelief a little bit there, because there are moments when, because the you know, since the Hobbit has not been, has not like the Lord of the Rings has kind of departed from it in some ways. The match isn't perfect, right? So there are times when looking back in the Hobbit, we have to suspend disbelief, like with the Stone Giants, um, which is fine. Um, but then, almost immediately after that, we're being asked sort of not to do that, to kind of make that connection. So, um, Glowen's point about the untenderness suggests then to me an important question. Right? Um, why? We hear what Legolas says. We hear that they wearied of the task of guarding the creature day and night. <laughs> professional jailers. They are not, right? Um, they got sick of it, but 
you know, they hoped for his cure, and they had not the heart to keep him ever in dungeons under the earth where he would fall back into his old black thoughts. That tells us two things about the elves, or at least about Legolas, right? One is that they have good hearts, right? They have pity. They are we, we know that they were good people. We, the Hobbit insisted on that. Um, though it's a little bit unclear exactly what that means when the Hobbit when the Hobbit narrator tells us that, you know, yet they were elves and they are and remain good people, capital G, capital P. Well, what exactly are the qualifications to be a good person with capital letters? Exactly. But whatever. Whatever that is that may be in the Hobbit, here we can see that they also have pity for Gollum. Right? They don't have the heart to keep him ever in dungeons. And why not? Here's the other thing that we see about them. Where he would fall back into his old black thoughts. We see wisdom there. right? Wisdom that shows um, that they can sort of understand that kind of cause and effect. right? That they know enough and they can see clearly enough to perceive that um, if he is to be healed he needs to be drawn out of that this impulse to uh, to hide and stay and remain in darkness um, and sort of have his uh, his eyes and his face be downwards that's a bad thing for him right they need to help him sort of cure that so what do they do instead as we're going to be told in the next slide they take him out into the sun and they let him go up into the trees right let's try to orient his face and his eyes upward instead of downward and in and in the light instead of in the darkness so again um i think that we can um uh i think that we can say uh we can uh we can see that they that they not only are are pitiable but they're also wise okay so why do these wise uh, thoughtful, penetrating, kindly, good-hearted, well-intentioned people treat the dwarves the way that they do in The Hobbit? It's hard. I don't know the answer to that question. It's, uh, we're not, <laughs> yeah, Matt, that's a really good point. Matt said, uh, in Irish lore, you call the, she, uh, 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 you call the she the good folk. Uh, as one way of avoiding their ire uh, by misaddressing them. Yes, exactly. Right, you, you would never call them fairies, Matt. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So good folk, good people, in that sense, right, was almost like a kind of euphemism, right? Um, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Now I agree, Emily and Gilgonthir, that Thorin wasn't exactly polite uh, uh, to them. Um, though I have to admit that my own sympathy is wholly on the side of Balin. Um, uh, I love Balin's response about, you know, how, you know, looking for food because we were starving. Um, and again, like the way that they are, the way that Thranduil treats Balin and the others, like you must be, I, I I'm not saying I can't see Thranduil's side at all. Cause I can, I, I, I think it's, it is, it's, 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 but I can't think of them the same as I am invited to think of Legolas here. Um, but um, anyway, that's what I find so interesting about this connection is that there are there are there don't there don't seem to me to be very many times 
when we're being invited to almost do some like retcon of our own, right? Like he's inviting us to close the gap there um, to imagine how this fits. Um, Yeah, Tony, I was that good. That's just what I was going to say next, that this has more to do with the old view of dwarves. Exactly. That's the other thing, right? Is that the dwarves aren't any longer the same. This is one of the things that we see. One of the reasons why his choice to to bring in Glowen doesn't surprise me. Right? Because Glowen's arrival, again, especially in that conversation with Frodo that we saw before, and also in his contributions, the story about Balin and his uh, discussions in response to the um, the messenger from, from, from Mordor. I mean, you get the feeling that had the messenger from, had a messenger from Mordor showed up, had Thorin arrived and, and uh, without traumatic experience established himself as king and a messenger from Mordor had showed up like that, Thorin wouldn't have betrayed a comrade, right? So I'm not saying he would have given Bilbo up without a thought. Um, but dwarves, as dwarves are depicted in The Hobbit, at that time in like the evolution of dwarves in Tolkien's thought... I got to think that they would have made a deal or at least talked about it, right? You know, I think that the conversation with the messenger of Mordor, instead of being like, we must resist the enemy at all costs, they would have been like, so what's on the table? <laughs> what? What are you? Okay, so you say all of my, you know, I mean, I, they probably would have been suspicious, um, not because they found Sauron intrinsically, you know, like just purely the enemy, uh, but because they would have been suspicious that his offer was too big, right? They, they would have they would have smelled a rat uh, just from a pure negotiating standpoint. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> JJ says that was a regrettable misunderstanding long set right it is no longer a crime to be lost in the forest hungry and thirsty nor to be trapped by spiders exactly the laws have changed uh, exactly yeah that's okay now um, but um, anyway so the dwarves have changed right and again one of the reasons one of the functions it seems to me of of reintroducing Glowen, showing a later generation Glowen, an old and venerable Glowen uh, here, is helping us to make that link, helping us to see how dwarves are different. Because Gimli, Gimli's not like Thorin and company. Gimli is not Bomber. It's not even like a skinnier Bomber, right? Um, he is not like the dwarves. That we, you know, all think of all those things that we are told about dwarves. Uh, think of, uh, you know, the the way the narrator talks about dwarves in the Hobbit, right? Those aren't true anymore. Those things aren't true of Gimli. Um, we are being asked in the Lord of the Rings systematically to reconfigure our expectations about dwarves, um, and that begins our reorientation to dwarves begins with Glowen. And so part of this is inviting us to think that things have changed, right? Um, and uh, and I agree that, um, uh, you know, as several of you were um, are talking, he does, 
it's not that it doesn't fit. It's not that it doesn't work, right? That is to think that things have changed. Uh, Tim, I think you were just saying this, right? That it's not just that Tolkien's view of the Wood Elves has changed. It's that the Wood Elves themselves have changed over, you know, the last 70 years. Um, Their relationships with the dwarves have changed, and so therefore their attitudes have changed somewhat. I have a little bit of a hard time imagining the Wood Elves have totally changed, like, who they are as a people, essentially, because it's not been a big moment for them, actually. Like, there's... Um, I mean, maybe their impression of these particular dwarves has improved somewhat, but, um, uh, but, you know, the last 70 years has not been a real massive time for change, uh, in the point of view of the Wood Elves as a, as a people, really, right? Most of them have probably not been aware that much significant has happened in the last 70 years. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, we're being gently invited to sort of retcon the dwarves here. but And that's why Glowin's, Glowin's temporary reversion, right? This is, the, this is the moment. This is one moment that kind of cuts back against that. We're in a different place now. The Wood Elves... We, we should think differently about the Wood Elves. We're already being here in this paragraph invited to think differently about the Wood Elves, maybe, than we saw in The Hobbit. We're definitely being invited to think differently about dwarves Glowin at the dinner and Glowin at the council has begun the work of that. Gimli and Gimli's role uh, in the company is going to complete that work over the course of the Lord of the Rings. Um, But here in this one moment, a flash of the past emerges, right? Resentment uh, by Glowin. the recollection of these things, uh, of these things happening. And I think that that's really interesting. I think that that's really interesting. Um, yeah, no, good. Michael D and, uh, Tony also, uh, are reminding us, of course, that our, uh, the perspective on the events of the Hobbit are biased by Bilbo's point of view. Uh, and so perhaps we're, um, um, we're, Expected to, you know, expected to suspect uh, that things were, um, you know, that we're now getting a different view because uh, uh, Bilbo was kind of biased in his perspective. I think possibly, um, uh, possibly, but um, yeah. Now, Gimli, people are talking about whether Gimli's an outlier. Well, we'll see, though that's going to be a hard thing to judge because he's the only dwarf we get to know really well. Um, And also, to what extent Gimli is an outlier before he sets off on the the journey, I don't know. But he is obviously an outlier by the end of it, as is Legolas, right? Um, So, yeah, uh, he, Gimli, is going to be having experiences which are going to change him very significantly. That's quite clear. Um, and Legolas as well. I don't want to underplay that as well. Um, but Mike, I agree. I don't think that Bilbo has a strong anti-Wood Elf bias because he does come to think very highly of the Wood Elves. I mean, the he and the Wood Elves end on very good terms. Uh, so I don't think that we necessarily see a systematic anti-Wood Elf bias in uh, uh, in the, the Hobbit as a whole. But... Um, uh, anyway, um, 
I wanted to go back to now because within the story, I think I agree with. There we go. Matt was saying earlier. Um, I saw it briefly go by Matt, but I wanted to go back to it and I found it. Um, uh, Matt says the part I like about this scene is that it highlights how fragile the fledgling alliance of the free people is. The tensions between the elves and dwarves of Boromir's prickly defense of Gondor's glory, and even the pointed questioning of the elves. This could all go badly quickly. It puts Frodo's decision in the category of eucatastrophe by bringing everyone together. Yes. And that, I think, Matt, is especially emphasized by Gandalf's interruption, right? Um, if he lets this go, the whole thing could really fly apart, right? Um, there is not really a consensus agreement on the part of all the good guys, right, to band together no matter what to oppose the enemy. Um, that's just... It doesn't work that way. Um, that really isn't what we see. Uh, so, I agree. I think that this is a really important reminder of that. And perhaps, Matt... Um, Perhaps that, perhaps that um, element, um, perhaps that element is enough for Tolkien to kind of take this risk here, um, because again, to me, it's a little jarring. What I am being compelled to remember, I can't read. You know, you were less tender to me," said Glowen with a flash of his eyes as old memories were stirred of his imprisonment in the deep places of the Elven King's halls. Well, guess what? That stirs in me memories of the imprisonment of Glowen and the other dwarves in the deep places of the Elven King's Halls. And when I do remember that, I feel like it doesn't really fit perfectly well um, uh, with the rest of this. So in that sense, it's a risk, right? Um, Tolkien is uh, taking a little bit of a, a leap there. And I guess, Matt, that I would say the point that you were making, the, the or rather the... Um, the result of this passage that you're pointing to, that reminder of how fragile is the alliance among the good guys, among, you know, the, the, the free peoples, um, that that's worth, you know, that's, that's, that's worth this particular risk, uh, that he's, that he's taking, uh, there. Um, yeah. And Tony, you're right. I mean, Jackson picked up on this, right. And, you know, in typical cinematic fashion, made it bigger, right? By having everybody dissolving into standing up and shouting at each other and everything. That's not how it goes down. Um, but I get it, right? You know, that's one of several places I think you can point to in the films where they are taking a concept which is there in the book and it's very gently um, handled in the book. Um, and then it, it gets made much more... Uh, something which is subtle and internal is made external and overt um, and much flashier uh, and more spectacular. That's a very frequent. Um, it's, and that's not just Jackson, of course. It's a very frequent technique when you are adapting a book into a film. Uh, so I, 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 there I, I don't think that... Uh, um, I think that you can see... I think that we're here kind of pointing to some of the stuff that, that Jackson and his team were rightly picking up on there. Um, and, uh, Corey, I, I agree with you there as well that um, so Glowen can't not react like this. The setup is just perfect. Um, we'd be more surprised if he didn't react. And, and I think you're right. Um, I know that 
Tolkien said that that was the thing that determined his choices when writing more than anything else. Um, you know, he didn't you know, make things happen in the story just in order to create particular effects in the story, right? He made things happen because he says that he would kept, you know, that he, the question he was asking first and foremost was like, what would the character do, right? You know, what is, and so, Corey, yeah, the answer to the question, what would Glowin do when he hears Legolas make that statement, right, from the paragraph before, uh, yeah, he's not gonna. He's not gonna forget. He's not gonna sweep it under the rug. That seems to be an element of dwarf characterization, which has not changed. Resentful, um, unforgiving, uh, bitter, even vengeful. That's um, still seems to be uh, a bit of a thing, right, with the dwarves. And so, so yes, like he, you know, Tolkien doesn't run away from the fact that yeah, Glowen would probably still uh, make, a, make a comment, right? Um, good. Now, Lincoln, I really like your reading there. Uh, Lincoln says, I think his, this sequence recontextualizes Thranduil's treatment of the dwarves in The Hobbit. It, it wasn't out of character, but it also wasn't his typical attitude towards prisoners. He really had it out for the dwarves, uh, for dwarves, especially uncooperative dwarves. It makes him and the Wood Elves, by extension, more complex than the one-dimensional do-gooders Aragorn and Legolas characterized them as in this chapter. Um, yeah, um, I do like that. If one, if we, and, and Lincoln, this seems to me like a very sensible way for us to kind of respond, right? In as much as Tolkien has kind of challenged us to backfill the story ourselves, right? Um, to bring those two, you know, he doesn't do it. He does not explicitly bring Thranduil and the Wood Elves' attitude to their dwarven prisoners into harmony with the attitude that we see in them here. He doesn't explicitly do that, right? If that's going to happen, we're kind of left to do it on our own. Um, and, and I like that way of doing it. That it shows us uh, his specific, the specific acts he was grinding right uh, against dwarves in particular. That when it came to dwarf prisoners wandering, you know, dwarf, strange dwarves wandering through his country and breaking in on them at a time of festival, no less, right? That's... Um, uh, that just pushed his buttons, right? So did he act differently than he often would? Uh, did he act a little bit less kindly? Um, you know, he certainly was not guilty of over-kindliness uh, to Thorin and company, right? Um, and that's... Um, uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, I think that's... Uh, I think that that's... That that's interesting. So, Lincoln, I do like that reading... Um, uh, of that. Um, okay. One last tantalizing thing. If all the grievances that stand between elves and dwarves are to be brought up here, we may as well abandon this council. Again, I agree Gandalf is, look, there's no question that Gandalf's right about that, right? He certainly is right. But doesn't a part of you kind of wish that we could hear them, Right? What are all the grievances that stand between elves and dwarves? I'd like to know, actually. Um, 
I'd like to know, and the reason I would like to know is that it's a little hard to tell when Tolkien wrote this, where the history of elves and dwarves stood, right? Arnaud says nobody mentioned Thingol, but that's exactly it, right? The reason I say this is that the... Christopher Tolkien, rightly and honestly, confesses that the material surrounding the fall of Doriath in the published Silmarillion is a complete mess. Um, with some of the um, with some of the elements, so some of the parts of the Silmarillion, there are clear narratives and the, the choice is just like which version of the narrative is Christopher going to choose um, uh, or like is he going to like excerpt parts of it? Is he going to, you know, how much of it is he going to give and all that? Um, uh and he is, you know, fairly consistent in how he makes those choices in the published Silmarillion. But the fall of Doriath material, it's not like that. I mean, um, it's one of the places where Christopher had to write some of it himself. Um, he did confess, um, not in writing, uh, but he did confess uh, that he wrote the Christopher wrote the speech, um, Thingol's final speech in the Silmarillion. Um, um, uh, you know, how dare ye of uncouth race, that, that, that speech. Um, um, Christopher wrote that. Um, because, that, like, anyway, like, there are lots of reasons. Christopher was very, very careful, and he tried so hard to avoid having to add material himself. But... Tolkien's ideas had shifted around so much and he never went back and wrote anything like a later, more definitive version of that. So I would love just to know, when Tolkien wrote that sentence, if all of the grievances that stand between elves and dwarves would be brought up here, what, if at that moment, we could have paused Tolkien and said, okay, could you just give us a list? What exactly are the grievances that stand, that still stand? What, what, what is the status of that list, right? Um, how do you see it working out? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Mornowin, it's true. Christopher wrote that speech. Uh, I got that from Verlin Flieger. Verlin Flieger told me triumphantly, one day she told me triumphantly uh, that she had backed Christopher Tolkien into a corner once and and, and made him confess <laughs> that he wrote that speech. And he did. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, anyway, I, I um, so uh, yeah, it's just so yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would love to know. I would love to know exactly uh, what those grievances are because it's kind of unclear to me. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure Green Great Dragon exactly. I know it's the speech, the direct dialogue of Thingol there that he wrote. Um, but did he write the so died in the deep places of Menegroth Elway Singolo sentence? I'm not sure. He might have done. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so... Just a little side note there. Um, but it's important to acknowledge uh, 
that whatsoever the actual list of grievances may be and how the story of the fall of Doriath stands in Tolkien's imagination at this time and how that in turn connects directly with uh, the history of, you know, Durin's folk and everything. Because remember, that's one thing that we see explicitly reversed, right? That is, it is explicitly the Longbeards who are involved uh, in the Doriath debacle uh, in the earlier Silmarillion material, and Tolkien overtly reverses that, right? We know that he explicitly reversed that and said in The Hobbit that Thorin's family was not involved in that, right? Um, Okay. Um, But, um, uh, yeah, so anyway... um, I get so we don't we don't we don't really know. But anyway, never mind. Point is, um, however that list may stand, it is interesting that we are being reminded that the grieve that there are grievances, that the list is long, and that feelings are still raw about that. There still exists um, clear not just local and idiosyncratic, right? Like Glowens against Legolas here. Um, you know, one specific regrettable misunderstanding uh, from, you know, that happened just within the last century. Um, but that there are genuine, there are, there is ill will, long-standing ill will between elves and dwarves still, which if once that, you know, is let, once that particular Pandora's box is opened, uh, is likely to derail the entire council, right? So it is... Um, important uh, to remember uh, to, to sort of acknowledge that right and I think that that's really uh, uh, I think that's really interesting I think it's really important um, yeah um, yeah WKU points out that we also only have information of these grievances from the elvish point of view uh, the dwarves might have whole volumes of grievances. Well, WKU, if anybody has volumes of grievances, I think it would be the dwarves, right? Um, I could easily imagine that. I am sure there would be a list of uh, of grievances that we, we would never even have heard of, right? Um, which uh, would never... Not just because the elves are covering it up or something, but because the elves like might not even have really noticed that. Right. Um, uh, you know, some kind of, I don't know, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, trade agreement or something, you know, which uh, like that, you know, I, I have no doubts that the dwarves retain a long and detailed list of things that they hold against the elves. Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> Sam, exactly. Something like that. And then the pompous elves blatantly denied us worker benefits. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, this, and the elves didn't even notice, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> something involving ale. Yeah, yeah, they probably still remember that, I'm sure. Um, anyway, okay. Well, that's enough on that half slide. Let's try to do another one. Glowen rose and bowed, and Legolas continued. Um, I do want to agree. I forget who said it earlier on, um, but I do want to agree. Glowen does let it go very quickly, right? Um, so although we do see Glowen can't 
just stay silent, right? I mean, he 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 remembers, um, and yet he does let it go quickly. Uh, so we see that we are being shown more reason to think of the Wood Elves as really good people uh, here, as much reason here as we've seen almost anywhere else. Um, we are seeing some development in Glowen's character too. Think of the compare and contrast. Glowen's response, both his initial response and his reaction to Gandalf's semi-rebuke, not quite a rebuke, but appeal at the very least, right? Um, think of Glowen's, compare and contrast that with Thorin, right? What would Thorin do? Uh, rise and bow and be like, oh, you're absolutely right. I shall set that aside and let us continue. I don't see Thorin doing that. At least not, you know, pre-deathbed Thorin. Exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, Glow and the Diplomat reasserts himself. Mad Violinist. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, JJ, I agree. It does show that the dwarves have become rather good, that they're willing to uh, set aside their grievances and work with the elves for the good of all. Absolutely. Um, that's a big deal. And certainly helps to recontextualize if we're really good Hobbit readers, right, before we come to the Fellowship of the Ring, um, it's going to take some re-education, right? Because although it's hard not to uh, feel any affection towards the dwarves in The Hobbit, um, but yet dwarves are not heroes, right? We're told these things very clearly and we can see in their actions. Um, it's one of the things that makes Thorin's deathbed scene so moving is to see his change of heart and his not only changing his own perspective, but acknowledging that, you know, the, the kinds of values that he always accepted are not good. Like he's, it's not just that he personally has had a change of, uh, of heart, but that he is, uh, he's calling into question the entire sort of dwarvish point of view, right? Uh, it's a big deal. Thorin's deathbed is a big deal. Um, and we're being prompted to see that perhaps in some sense, some long-term changes come of it. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. Legos is going to continue. In the days of fair weather, we led Gollum through the woods, and there was a high tree standing alone, far from the others, which he liked to climb. Often we let him mount up to the highest branches, until he felt the free wind, but we set a guard at the tree's foot. One day he refused to come down, and the guards had no mind to climb after him. He had learned the trick of clinging to boughs with his feet as well as with his hands, so they sat by the tree far into the night. It was that very night of summer, yet moonless and starless, that orcs came on us unawares. We drove them off after some time. They were many and fierce, but they came from over the mountains and, and, and were unused to the woods. When the battle was over, we found that Gollum was gone and his guards were slain or taken. It, was then, it then seemed plain to us that the attack had been made for his rescue and that he knew of it beforehand. How that was contrived, we cannot guess. But Gollum is cunning, and the spies of the enemy are many. The dark things that were driven out in the year of the dragon's fall have returned in greater numbers, and Mirkwood is again an evil place, save where our realm is maintained. Okay. Um... What happened? 
What happened? Um, we'll come back to, um, we'll come back to Gollum's feet. Uh, that's a later question. What happened? How? Legolas can't guess how Gollum's escape was contrived. Can we? I see you guys are talking about the feet anyway. Hang on. Forget the feet for a minute. We'll come back to it. I want to talk about the big question. How? Legolas's only guess. Legolas's only guess is Gollum contrived it. Right? <laughs> And Sharon, it does stand to reason that um, um, that uh, alcohol was involved on the part of the cards. There's precedent for that kind of thing. Um, well, let's um, let's first run with Legolas's suggestion. Right. Um, Legolas's suggestion, Go- but Gollum is cunning, he says. Um, his segue to you know how that was contrived, but Gollum is cunning, suggests that Gollum was the mastermind of his own escape. That Gollum somehow managed to communicate to his allies, to the orcs, that they should come rescue him. And they had prearranged the day and time when that should happen. It's clear that Gollum was in on it, no matter what, right? That there was communication between Gollum and the outside. That's certain. That's inescapable, I think. Because this on this day, the day on which the orcs attacked, that is the day, the first day, the only day, it sounds, when Gollum refused to come down, right? Um, one day he refused to come down, Legolas says. It's not like, you know, half the time he would never even come down, and so, you know, we had just taken to sitting by the tree all night anyway, right? He had, um, so like on the day of his escape, he refuses to come down. Um, so, Gollum knows it's happening. Um, Mariel is asking, could it possibly be that he just, that it, they they hadn't coordinated? That he saw them coming? Um, it's possible. Um, it's possible that he saw them coming like from the top of the tree. So like the elves were at the bottom of the tree and he's up at the top of the tree. And so he sees the dwarves coming. But, or not the dwarves, the orcs, sorry, coming. Is that possible? Remember, 
this tree isn't in a clearing. I mean, okay, it is in a clearing. Like, it stands by itself. It does not touching other trees. But it's not in a, like, a big old field. It's, 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 it's in the middle of Mirkwood. Right? This is a tree in the middle of Mirkwood. Remember what Bilbo could see from the top of a tree in the middle of Mirkwood, right? Um, how could, so remember back to Bilbo's view, treetop view in Mirkwood. How could he have seen anyone coming? All he could see were the spiders and the butterflies at the top of the at the top of the trees, right? He might be able to see the mountains in the distance, like extreme distance, but could he even see like a beacon from there? You know, and if so, it would take them days to travel to there. I mean, how could he see if there were orcs like a few hours march away? He all he could see is more trees from the top of where he was. I don't think he could possibly see them. Um, so, so yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't think that. I, I, I have to think that it was coordinated. Um, that he knew that this was the date appointed for his rescue. Um. Exeter, Kedid, it's possible that they would have been known by the terror they would bring, but in which case the elves would have been the first ones to notice, right? No way the elves wouldn't have noticed that. Um, if the orcs could be sensed coming, would Gollum sense them but not the elves? I have a hard time believing that. Um, no, I think... Um, I think that... I think... I, I still th- stick with the word inescapable that it was coordinated. Um, in which case, three things are necessary. Three things must be true. If Gollum's escape were coordinated, then three things must be true. One, there has to be a method of communication between Gollum and his allies. Two, There has to be somebody particular that he views as an ally. He, Gollum, views as an ally that he would choose to reach out to. So, presuming that there is some kind of mechanism, as there must be, some kind of mechanism for communication, to whom does he send his message, right? Whatever the mechanism may be, there's got to be somebody that he says that he chooses to send his SOS message to, right? That's the second thing. The third thing that must be true, if the escape was planned, is that somebody else had to care enough about Gollum to know enough and care enough about Gollum actually to rescue him, right? Um, Communication was possible. He had somebody that he thought to reach out to, and another person decided to take him up on it and actually to go out of their way to cause his rescue. Those three things, if those, if, if any one of those three things is not true, then a pre-planned rescue can't happen. Right? So, what then? How then could this happen? 
Um, <laughs> Sharon says it's like Rogue One in reverse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, several people are asking about Providence, saying, uh, is a chance if chance it's called, does that only work for the good guys? Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. But more than that. No, I'm not going to say more than that, I don't think. Um, I... Well, let me come back to that question. Let me come back to that question. Um, I don't think... I don't think that it is fair uh, merely to say that um, Providence... like A providential explanation would look like this. The orcs were just... The orcs were... There was going to be an orc attack on the forest. Gollum arbitrarily decided to be stubborn on this day for some reason of his own. Right? Those two things happened to occur on exactly the same night, and Gollum took advantage of the opportunity to escape because of that coincidence. That's what... um, that's what a providential explanation of this would look like. Do I think that that's impossible? No, I can't say it's impossible because some of the things that are clearly providentially organized on the part of the good guys is less probable, objectively speaking, even than that. Um, but... But I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is... The reason I don't think so is that I think it's just... It's a, it's an explanation that fits less, right? That is, if, we have, if we're forced to choose between the two explanations, one, there was coordination. It was contrived, as Legolas says. And two, it was just a coincidence. The former seems to me clearly the more compelling reading. We have lots of positive reason to think. When we talk about acts of providence on the part of the good guys, whenever that happens, we are told that there is no other explanation that can be given, right? I mean, take Gildor's coming upon Frodo and the Ringwraith in the Shire, right? Um, that's one of our chance, if chance you call it, moments, right? Explicitly. Um, well, Gildor goes out of his way to say that he knew nothing, right? That there was, you know, so basically there, there, there are two theories, right? Either the El- Gildor and the elves showed up just at that moment coincidentally, right? Providentially, or they contrived it, right? We know Frodo didn't contrive it. Frodo didn't summon them or send some message to them. 
Um, so that mean, would mean it must have been contrived by Gildor, that he somehow knew or suspected or sensed the presence of the Nazgul and therefore showed up. Except he tells us that that didn't happen, right? So we know Frodo did not contrive it. Gildor tells us that he didn't contrive it, and I see no reason to disbelieve him. And so, therefore, we must conclude that it's providence and it fits. With, and it's, it's just the sort of thing that providence does do, right? Um, here? No. No. Um, uh, we do have reason to believe that it was contrived. Um, and I do think we have to sort of... Yeah. So I'm not willing to be... Uh, um, yeah, yeah. JJ, Bilbo placing his hand on the ring lying on the floor of the cave right where Gollum happened to drop it. Yes. Neither Bilbo nor Gollum uh, caused that, contrived that. It was a thing that happened as if by chance, right? Um, that is to say, when we say that a thing is providential, it has to actually be a chance occurrence. A, 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 it has to be caused by what is, in fact, generally called and accepted as chance. And if you remember your Boethius, you will remember that those things that we call chance or luck are merely things, the causes of which we do not see. Um, Boethius agrees that there is no such thing as luck, right? It looks like luck. It looks like arbitrary chance to us, but of course it is not arbitrary chance. Everything has causes. Um, we just don't see, we're not privy to all of the causes. If we were privy to it, we would see that it is all in fact forming a pattern. This is, again, this is part of how uh, Boethius is explaining the concept of providence. Um, but, um, okay, anyway, um, so, all right, anyway, I think that Gollum contrived this. That still just seems to me, I think that we have good reasons to believe that this was contrived. Gollum's refusal on this night of all nights uh, to come down from the tree is, for me, pretty close to a smoking gun that Gollum knew in advance this was going to happen. If he knew in advance it was going to happen, it was not a coincidence, right? Um, and uh, I don't see any... Re you know, I don't hear Gollum saying like Gildor did, oh yeah, no, I had no idea, right? Uh, and if he did, I wouldn't believe him. <laughs> um, just because uh, I, I said with Gildor, I don't see any reason to disbelieve him. Well, I would see reason to disbelieve Gollum. Uh, Gollum is a liar, as we're told. Um, so anyway... Um, if it's contrived he must have had a method of communication he must have had somebody to communicate to and whomever he communicated to must have had a reason to take action on his behalf and communicate back to him right um, now let's start from the beginning um It would not at all surprise me that the enemy knew that Gollum was in Mirkwood. That wouldn't surprise me at all, right? Because they let Gollum go on an errand. Gandalf believes that. Um, 
surely, under those circumstances, Sauron would have had him tailed, right? Surely, somebody would have been tailing Gollum. Um, so, if, um, if, um, the idea that the enemy, therefore, saw Gollum captured by Aragorn and followed them uh, and knew that he was taken up into Mirkwood, that seems easy for me to believe. Okay, so that the enemy, that word would have gotten back to Sauron that Gollum had been captured by the good guys and was currently incarcerated in Mirkwood. I can believe that readily enough. Um, now, I agree as Sharon points out, there is continuous talk of the of enemy spies, um, uh, including birds and beasts. We know that that uh, that avian and bestial spies of the enemy were surrounding the Shire. I know everybody likes to imagine Krabine because, of course, Krabine are um, uh, seem to be explicitly used in that way, even in the books. Um, I don't think I think that we can expand our ideas there several people are suggesting the black squirrels Um, I wouldn't be a bit surprised Um, uh, but um, yeah Uh, Tony I agree that uh, Aragorn being followed all the way to Mirkwood without him suspecting that would be a trick but would he would he detect any bird or beast spy even a bird maybe i don't know um uh yeah um yeah and cecilia is asking why would the one follow them following them not help him to escape from aragorn first of all well for all we know, the spy is like a, a finch, right? Or something like that. What's he going to do? Try to peck Aragorn's eyes out? Like, um, if the spy leaves, then... And first of all, let me also just say, I don't... Um, I don't know how the spies work. I have no idea the mechanism there. What is that? We have to believe, because we're told explicitly, that Sauron uses beasts and birds as his spies. How does that work? Can Sauron telepathically communicate with birds and beasts over a distance? Do they have to report back? How rational are they? Can they just follow orders? Like, so the spies, some spy, bird or beast spy, right? is tailing Gollum. It's got to be a bird. He'd notice even a squirrel following him along. He'd eat it, right? So uh, it's got to be a bird, probably, right? So say there's a bird that has managed to follow Gollum on the sly, right? Okay. Um, So he, uh, the bird is trailing them. Is the, the bird has to make a call, so then the bird sees Gollum captured by uh, Aragorn. 
So now what? The bird has to has to has to has to has to call an audible. Right now the bird has to be like, okay, do I have to do I go back and report this or do I stay on his trail? Right? Um or again, does is there something can I mean, how does the, how deeply does the connection go and over how much distance? I've got to think that the spies of the enemy, bird, you know, bird and beast spies, um, the bird and beast spies of Sauron cannot possibly be like telepathically controlled by him. If it were, if it were as easy as that, if Sauron had the power to like inhabit the consciousness of a bird Right and like have it fly around and he can see through its eyes like that kind of thing. If he could do that, why would he even send the Nazgul out? Like surely he would have found the ring already, right? I mean, like that's much faster. At least he'd have found the Shire already, right? And been able to give the Nazgul a map for crying out loud, right? So, um, you know, I'm, um, uh, I'm thinking that that can't possibly be how it works. Um, now, yes. So several of you, I've been neglecting this set of suggestions here. Um, what about spiders? I agree. I kind of love the idea. There are two reasons why I kind of love the idea of Gollum communicating with a spider. One, is the way, Karita, as you were just saying, the way that it foreshadows the whole Sheila business, right? Yes, I like that too. Um, even if, like, the spider could communicate with Gollum because uh, Gollum already had this sort of, like, affinity with spiders because of his worship of Shelob. Uh So, kind of like that, right? I kind of like that idea. The other thing is the connection to the Hobbit, right? We know that small spiders live in the tops of these trees in Mirkwood, right? If there are two things that we know to expect from a treetop uh, outlook in Mirkwood, it's spiders and butterflies, right? Um, so, yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, now, But again, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Angris is wondering if Gollum brought a letter of introduction from Shelob to get the spiders of Mirkwood to not eat him. Well, remember, he doesn't introduce himself to the general spider population in Mirkwood, right? Um, this is not, we're not talking about Gollum waltzing into a colony of spiders like Bilbo did, uh, right? And like being accepted as a long lost cousin. Uh, no, we're talking about what would have happened if it, if a spider... I'm talking about Gollum communicating. How did Gollum get a message out, for one thing, right? Um, okay. This is such a complicated question. I said before that I'm willing to accept the idea that Sauron knows that Gollum is incarcerated in Mirkwood. Um... Sauron could then try. So, 
All right, hang on. I'm still stumbling over the basic problem. Why does Sauron care? Why would Sauron care that Gollum got captured? Surely he's not afraid of what information Gollum is going to reveal? What could he say? I mean, yeah, he's seen the inside of Barad-dûr, but notice his reaction, Sauron's reaction, is not to send somebody to silence him, right? He doesn't sp- send in a spider death squad to kill Gollum. He sends in a troop of orcs to spring him. He is trying to use Gollum to find the ring too, Musical. I guess I guess it would depend on how how much Sauron had personally invested in that particular stratagem, right? Um, I guess, I guess. Um, is that why Sauron let him go? What is Sauron's plan? What is Sauron's plan? For Gollum, I mean. Why does he let him go? What exactly is he hoping to gain? Um, a ring detector? Possibly. Possibly. Um, he did not use Gollum to find the Shire. Gollum was released after the Shire had been found. Or at least after they'd already headed out. Hmm. Okay. Well, one thing is here. One thing is true. One thing is clear, I should say. We're not going to solve this tonight. This is going to need more thought. Let's come back to this next week. Here's what I want to do. I want to evaluate theories. I want to evaluate theories on all four of those. Let's try to see if we can reconstruct. So this isn't exactly a reenactment, right? But let's try to reconstruct the series of events here. Why Sauron lets Gollum go, and therefore why he might want to spring Gollum from prison. How he finds out where he is, how Gollum communicates to the orcs, or how he communicates to Gollum. Who do we think initiated it? Did Gollum send out for help, or did Gollum get notified? So, um, let's, and what, and what is the mechanism of communication? There have to be answers to these questions. Um, Legolas even openly implies that this is the case, that it was contrived and he can't guess, but surely it's not beyond us to guess, right? So. I am looking forward to suggestions, right? Um, and then we will evaluate the suggestions 
next time. That's what we'll do. Those four questions. Sauron's motivations. Right? Sauron's... Well, I guess it's really three, because this is really the third thing that I said would have to be true, that somebody would have to care. So, first we need to know, from the Mordor perspective, why this was happening. Second, how this was happening. What is the mechanism of communication? And then third, um, what's... Gollum doing here? What's Gollum's angle? What's Gollum's perspective on all this? Okay. Alright. Alright, so we'll start there next time. This is a big question. This is a difficult question. Um, And it's especially difficult because we have very little on which to go. We have only the most extremely circumstantial textual evidence on this, right? So we have to come up with an answer. All we can do is come up with the most plausible answer. The answer that fits what uh, the, the facts that were given in the text, and then that also fits as well as possible with the rest of things, right? what seems to fit best, what seems to work best, what feels most plausible in the context of what we know about the characters in general, about the area in general, about the world in general. Um, yeah, JJ, exactly. we got a Sherlock Holmes this, right? Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, uh, however improbable, must be the truth. Exactly. Exactly. We kind of, That's kind of how we have to approach it here. Um, okay. So, um, uh, we will uh, we'll figure it out. We'll come up with... We'll, with so um, please do feel free to post ideas about this. Uh, either if you want to do a whole theory, I'd be happy to hear it. Or if you want... If there are just particular elements here that, you're, uh, that you uh, feel strongly about, uh, go ahead and... Uh, um, go ahead and suggest those, right, uh, on the discussion board. And we will... I'll come back and we'll look at this next time. Um, yeah, very good. Okay, excellent. <laughs> the game is afoot. And then we'll get back to talking about Gollum's feet. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Okay, very good. All right, excellent. So I'm going to... Um, um, I'm going to stop there because we could go on talking about this for hours yet, and I should not do that. I should let you guys actually uh, go, and I think some people might want to sleep. But for those of you who don't yet want to sleep, I invite you to join us on our field trip. We're going to uh, uh, we're right on the outskirts of Karn Doom uh, now. We're exploring Angband, and I've gotten right to the. We're in the suburb of Karn, the closest suburb, the closest commuter town uh, to Karn Doom is where we're starting our field trip tonight. So, um, uh, anyway, <laughs> thanks everybody. Uh, feel free to join us over on Twitch for our field trip, twitch.tv slash signumu. Uh, thanks everybody. Bye now. To our Twitter folks. Good. All right. And good evening, everyone. Good evening. So I, I, I do have to, I, I did think that if in piecing together why Sauron wants Gollum, we do have to take into account where we encounter Gollum next in the book, because that's going to be our biggest clue. That is a clue.
we do have to take that into account. All right. That is an excellent point. We didn't raise that one yet, but that is certainly true. Okay, so two right, points okay. unknown in Kondum. We are I headed got... to uh, Tarmun Sorsa. That's right. That's where the milestone is. Yes, where I fortunately thought to milestone before we left next time. Yep. I'm still amused by the idea that the, the, of the phrase and the elven guards were not inclined to, crawl, uh, to climb after him. It's like, what do you mean? It's like Gandalf has said, oh, look, this prisoner is top priority, A number one. Don't mess this up. And one elf going, I ain't going up there. You go up there. Yeah. It, it's, um, it is a little puzzling. Um, the whole sort of that. Now, I mean, I guess I... To give the Wood Elves credit, I can kind of understand, right? I mean, they don't have any reason to think. It's clear that, you know, the contrived escape catches them completely by surprise, right? So, um... We'll call that mistake number four. Right, the worst case scenario from their point of view is that he stays out all night, right? And they get yelled at. Well, or would they? Like... He's safe. Well, yeah, I don't know how long their shift is if they don't need to sleep. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So, you know, like, just as secure up in the tree as he is underground, right? Yeah. I suppose the jailers would rather be outside than in the jail. Right. Exactly. I don't know. Um, But (laughs) JJ says as far as they're concerned, they're just earning overtime. Yeah. Okay. All right, so here we are in Tarmun Sursa. And we've got that striking gate with the light features that we were looking at before. Now, let me indulge myself in what I was withholding before, because I didn't want to start looking around last time before we ended. But this is a fascinating archaeological hodgepodge, right? Just kind of so, like, just standing in the middle of this square and seeing what we see, right? We see here an old Angmarim wall. Yep. Right. You can tell by the 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 dark lower level, the sort of tarnished white middle level, and then the black metal tops. Right. Yep. Classic. In Absolutely. front of that stands. An evil Tudor house with no windows. Half timber plaster. Yeah, half timber plaster. So this is the this is the the Hillman style. So, right, this by itself mm-hmm. tells me that this was originally like part of the stronghold of Old Angmar. Of course, it is. It's right like on the doorstep of Carndoom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but since the fall of Old Angmar. The hillman kind of just moved back in, right? Yeah. Uh, because that's that's what all these wooden uh, plaster houses are, right? Are you know places like that residents and homes of the hillman in the generations since the fall of Angmar, which yes. in their defense has been several generations, right? Um, yep. it's okay. Got a fun door on it too. It does have a fun door. We've seen that door before, haven't we? 
We have... Uh, I can't remember exactly where. Might have been on another one of these uh, little half-timber old wall cities. It's possible. It's possible. Um, okay, and then if we continue to go around, we see more old Angmarim, and then again over here, more of those Tudor houses and things. So the whole pattern seems to repeat itself. But then there are a couple really interesting anomalies. The biggest of those is this building in the corner. What oh, wow. the heck is this? It's gothic. Yes. We, yeah, we've got this, like, faux gothic stone house built up against the old wall, but it's clearly much newer. It's a gatehouse? Maybe. I mean, it's adjacent it's to the gate. It's bricked up, apparently. The door? Oh, yeah. So it might have been a gatehouse back during when the old half-timber houses were in use, but now it's no longer used? Perhaps. But again, it looks much newer than the... I mean, look how much newer that looks than the wall behind us. Oh, yeah, than the wall behind it. I meant this is, might be the same age as the half-timber As the house, house. yeah. Yeah, but better preserved because not timber. Well, also, yeah, this is right. definitely, this is all stone here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's got these fleur de lises was... on Yeah, it. definitely great distinction for this person. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess uh, it was... Um... It's like someone dropped a cute little English chapel in the middle of this hellhole. Well, that's an interesting idea. Chapel. Even the windows look chapelish, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Um, okay. What about that, then? What if? So, it's been some time since the fall of Old Angmar. Like, oh, some yeah. thousand years since the fall <laughs> of Old Angmar. Um, so what if the hillmen who have been living here over the last thousand years, right, who are still sort of remain kind of culturally, you know, tainted by their Angmar days, you know, by their days under the Witch King himself, um, uh, they, uh, but you know they've they've you know they've sort of tried to move on. But that's why you know their Tudor houses look just slightly evil compared to the Tudor houses in Brie. Um, uh, but so what if they during this thousand year hiatus established some other religion, or perhaps this is as JJ suggests um, possibly a, um, possibly a, a, a crypt entrance or a mausoleum here well it looks like it goes into the wall yeah it does which we have established will sometimes have windows and stairs and stuff inside them. inside them yeah the other yeah. one is maybe it's a government building like they came up with a self-governing uh like a you know right so this is like the town hall anarcho-syndicalist commune where yes. they act in right. governor turns for the right. week so, so the executive officer but, would rule yeah. from here yeah 
Yeah, the, the, the bi-weekly executive officer would yeah. appear, yeah. but then the Ang Marm forces came in and said, look, we're your masters now. There is no small government and bricked it up. So they brick it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nancy points out that tax collection would also be appropriate next to a gate, which is true. That's true. But you would still need that if you're building an army. Yes. Yeah. But... Like, well, we'll have to see what we see in Karnum itself, but, uh-huh. but yeah, I think whatever it is, this has to be from that the time of the Angmarim hiatus, right? Um, and this is definitely the most grand building that we've seen that clearly dates from that period. Yeah, from the time of the hiatus. But it does sort of symbolize that this is an old way of doing, a, a newer way of doing things, which has now been repressed or just yes. destroyed. Yes, yes, suppressed in some way, certainly. Then you have this. In the middle, we get these wooden beams and this huge tent, like uh-huh. we're back in Algaier here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Except these, these banners here. Which are not like anything we've seen... In, who lives here? What tribe is this? Says, Are these good guys? I see clan is this nomad. Is the trade Galorg? Nomad. Um, you can take quests for them, and they're sitting with a dwarf. So I'm gonna say they're good guys. They're called just called nomads. Mm-hmm. Um. Now somebody remind me. We saw these. Little Chinese dragons? Uh-huh. On these side banners? I know we've seen them somewhere. Where have we seen them? <sighs> it wasn't in Algaier, was it? No, I thought we saw them, like, where the Merivale were, where they kept some of the tribesmen. Huh. I can't remember. I can't remember where, but I know we've seen that before, the dragon banner. Mm-hmm. And no, I don't think it was Beijing. <laughs> JJ. Somewhere in game, we definitely saw it. Whoa, it's eight. Oh, let's see. It's on, it's, I'd have to see how many claws it has. No, it's only got three claws. It's not an Imperial dragon. The threat of the Iron Crown grows daily. Forget uh, literal like that. Let's see. I want to figure out what these big long banners are. Is that like an axe on there? Is that from our dwarvish pal over here Tawny this looks almost like a sort of almost like a Native American stitching pattern doesn't it yeah I can't quite tell if it's woven or if there's like beads on there I think it's woven yeah I think it's a woven banner yeah it's really good detail the long tassels. So, hmm. So it's not too remarkable. Yeah, I'm looking at their costumes and their tattoos and things, and they look Uh kind of like the Trave Kalorg. Yeah. The good guys we met before. More more of a blue-green palette. Yeah, yeah, the color scheme's not exactly the same. The sc- 
what's up with this iron crown banner with the skulls? Is this a captured banner? Trophy? I'm just really confused about what's meant to be going on here, right? I mean, I'm I don't know. confused enough trying I, I to figure out. I want to see some the, of the text dialogue. Let me see. Trying to figure out the art. Okay. Oh, so the, they, uh, Aya over here says that my people are gone spirited away by the orc slavers of Karn Doom. Right. These slavers raid our villages and take our best warriors away to toil in the work camps. Chained and shackled, they are forced to labor for the false king. Right. That's really it. The rest is saying, look for a husband. And and so, we do have dwarf allies here. Yeah. This dwarf is looking for revenge against the trolls of Angmar. Is he? Revenge against the trolls. Yeah, it just says he and his brothers have been plagued by the trolls. Well, that can happen. Yeah. Okay, and so this sort of... What is this? Wood or thatched? Wood and thatch. Uh, okay. Roofed little stable area here with another big old sheet of... Um, leather hanging down. Yep. Okay, so... All right. That just looks like all the staples we see in this area. It's almost like they built their camp around the stable area. But this banner, the Iron Crown banner, I mean. Maybe they're laying low. Maybe it's there in case someone comes and saying, who are you guys? Oh, what yeah, are you doing totally here? in alliance with Angmar. Oh, man. Look, look, at the, look at the Poison River below here. At the very back of the camp. What, out the back? Careful, there's some gaps in this fence. Poison River. That is nasty. Okay. Oh, look. So that's one of the smokestacks that we saw. Yep. Or at least it's just like it. It's just belching green smoke into the air. Uh huh. Once oh. again, is that is it evil or is it pollution or is it is it both? It's evil pollution. Um. Evil pollution. Oh yeah. Look at that little factory over there. Well, not quite so little. It looks like a power plant from here. It's so industrial yeah like when you pass by a, a, an, a power plant at night and everything's lit up and the clouds are lit up <laughs> Brandon says what wonderful waterfront views this suburb has it's true <laughs> um okay wait so if we go penny for these. uh JJ says there's a respawn point to the west of us where we can get an even better view of this. Let me see if we can go around. Then we'll try to put some of these observations together. But it's complicated. Ah, oh, yeah, here's the respawn point. Uh, uh, yep. Okay, no fence here at all. Okay. Great Shanaki, look at that. Okay. Some mighty big fortress there. Yeah. Oh, come on, Peacock. So 
notice the spiky, you know, we got that, that new spiky metal. Yep. There's somebody who's leapt down. I hope that was not fatal. Um, if you live, tell us what it's like. I guess if they die, they'll just reappear right up here, so that's convenient. Yeah, in the red circle. Um, yep. Uh, again, leading me to remember my theory about those things being some kind of uh, I don't know what sort of spiritual lightning rod or something, you know, some kind of instrument of power. Yeah, well, speaking of instrument of powers, we got another uh, fishhook fountain across the, the, the bridge uh, sorry. to the to the left of us. Uh, the, looking, over the, looking over the precipice, the first bridge on your left. Oh, yeah, right, there it is. You had another fishhook fountain I down do. there, right and across so, the steel bridge. Exactly, and if you look at... If you look at the... I mean, look at the... Wowie cow. This is Carndoom itself we're looking at here. Yep. Okay, hang on a second. I can't. I can't even. We'll start there next time. I need to finish yeah. this first. Let's let's not <laughs> yeah. let's not start looking at Carndoom before we finish but the suburb here. Okay. It's a good view of Carndoom, though. It's an excellent view of Carndoom. We'll start there. Yeah, it. definitely. Okay, a couple more pieces of evidence to throw into the pot, and then we'll try to we'll try to come up with the narrative. Sure. We've got this stable, which matches the what are stable-ish sort of pavilion area, uh-huh. right? Which matches the one inside the you know tent area. There before, and we've got a, a Dunedain, a Dunedain here. Yep. Ranger. Gwathir. Right. Gwathrin? Gwathrin? Gwathrin. Gwathrin, yeah. Looking out. What are we looking at? Karandum, generally. We are ready for our assault. Okay. Right. We're just, we're looking. Someone's okay. all excited. So there's a ranger here, too. And, the, oh dear. Somebody over here who's crying, but that is not shocking. The thing we're since missing is the Hobbit and Elf. Yeah, since apparently there's uh, people getting captured and taken off by orc slavers. So, uh, oh, she right. is an elf. Look at that. She is an elf. Yeah, she's an elf. Bruno, oh yeah, so she is. Yeah. She's wearing elven elven dress. Yep, and and the ears. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got weeping. Uh, weeping elf women. That's not shocking. Okay. Um, and now, but here's the other thing that really took my interest. Up here. Ignore Karn Doom in the background and look in okay. the foreground. Look at this stone. This is not Old Angmar. Or it doesn't look like it. No. Look at there. Right there. See, there's Old Angmar, and there's the much newer stone jutting up against it. Yeah, I yeah. think that this is the same stone that had, like, the rusty arches down the way. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah. So, and we were suggesting that the gray block stone buildings 
with the rusty arches uh-huh. was a later, like, during the Angmarim hiatus construction, right? Where they were, like, emu- trying to emulate the power of old Angmar, but, you know, they didn't have yeah, the, yeah, the technology. Didn't have the technology for the domes and the right freestanding statues, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, those, that metal up there does have a pattern on it. Huh. Hmm. No idea. Nothing I can make out there. Yeah, me neither, but it's odd. It looks like... Um... I'm trying to figure out... I don't think it's representational. That's not what I'm trying to figure out. What I'm trying to figure out is... It's a ruin, clearly, but what did that used to be? Why are there three metal pieces, you know, sticking out like that? It just seems really weird. Are we talking about the little rectangles at the top there? Yeah. Yeah, kind of Cthulhu tentacle-looking things. Yeah, exactly. But, like, what did that used to... What Was there, like, a... Is it the it's either to inspire, to terrify, or to show off. Or, I mean, was there more? Did it keep going? Was it the beginning of an arch, or a beginning? Is it the base of something that's broken off on the top? Like a like a trebuchet or a crossbow or something? No, I, no, well, I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of something architectural, because it looks like the top of the wall is broken off there, so the wall used to continue up. So... This is the wall up and those three metal things on the outside was at the beginning of like an arch coming out like a um, oh like it was helping to hold up a tower or something right exactly or like even some kind of walk along the top or something like that I don't know um yeah can't see what's up on top of it yeah well anyway so, and this is the only such stone of this kind of stone that we get in this village. Nowhere else do we see this sort of newer, but still ruinous, stone here in the village. We saw it down the way, but we didn't see it up here. Yeah. And then the final observation is the landing and the bridge. Which at least this side of it has to be understood to be part of this village, you know, part of this suburb. Mm-hmm. Ooh, look at the little cutouts and everything out here. Those bridges, nice high railings. Don't they look like the rusty stone or the rusty metal? They do. Yeah, they do look like that rusty metal. They do. I'm just surprised we finally had a place with railings that uh, are actually at the proper height. <laughs> so you can just see over them conveniently? So we can see, oh, here are the poison rapids. Yeah, here, this is like a this is like a class five poison rapid over here. Ugh. Yeah. Nobody wants that. Well, I think it ends in a waterfall, which, yeah. The poison yeah. doesn't kill you, the fall will. Right. I think possibly even a waterfall that we saw. Yes, we did. So this is the origin of that poison river that goes down into Imlad Balhorth. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. 
Is that scan with the map? Yep, yep, that's exactly yep. right. We're we are right at the map. Okay. Right. Wait, what direction am I facing? Okay, so that's Uragarth down there, that like big walkway I can see in the distance. How do you get to Uragarth? Um, uh, might be from following up here and going down, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, we'll see. That's a question for another time. Okay. Anyway, I'm looking at these. I mean, look at the difference between the stones here and the paving stones. Look at this rail. All squared off. Oh, man, you must uh, look at they're all uneven heights and everything. You trip yeah. on this every five seconds. You mean the. The, the stone at the, the bottom. Stone, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you don't really ideally want to position a major tripping hazard right next to a fast running poison Bridge. river. Well, maybe that's why the railings are so high now. Right, yeah, exactly. They, they, was, they, they were uh, afraid of lawsuits, so they had to install the railings. Lawsuits, nothing. Those men were valuable. <laughs> Just ask the slavers who bought them. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. No, I've I've walked on stones that like this. My toes are twitching in sympathy. Right. Right. <laughs> right. It's not like these nice flat ones that are all ground down. Right. Which implies this is kind of new, and they have made a really quick go of it. Okay. All right. So, what is the story of this suburb? Let us reconstruct the story of this suburb. Old Angmar. This was just like the gate courtyard, right? Yep. The only thing we can see from Old Angmar are the walls around what appears to be an open courtyard. Um, and there's like evidence of a tower up here on the side past the red circle up the hill right that seems to be the only thing clearly the bridge was clearly built in old angmar as well that though not necessarily the landing but the bridge definitely i think is from old angmar well constructed and it seems to be of the same materials the lighter stone the black not rusty sort of metal inlay there right so okay so if we have oh wait and the one thing i didn't see let me go over here here by Runaleth or Rune, Runaleth over here again. Look at the side of the bridge. I want to look at that. Looks like there's only about three residential homes here. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so I think that the bridge is Old Angmar and the courtyard is Old Angmar, but there wasn't there's no evidence of anything really remaining from that. Then, during the hiatus, during the hiatus, the um, during the hiatus, the hillmen moved in here and lived and set up these houses plus that stone building, whatever its purpose was. Whether it was a tax, a bank, right? The tax collectors. Um, or whether it was a mausoleum or whether it was a shrine. Um, We're not sure. But um, whatever it was, it was clearly built in that time. So there was 
there were some, not many, as you say. It's not like this was ever a thriving village, right? Yes. Um, but there a few is... few people lived here with jobs. <laughs> yeah, quite likely. Quite likely. Um, and we'll have to see how much evidence there is of hiatus-time dwellings inside Karndum itself, right? Um, but, um, okay, so we have, uh, so, but then, then, New Angmar is established. Uh-huh. And New Angmar, well, no, New Angmar can't be responsible for those new stone constructions, because they're too ruinous for that. Yeah, they're kind of busted up. They are pretty busted up, so they the must... The stone matches the stone bases of these half-timber houses. Yeah, I think it has to be. So there was some... I don't know what their goal was up there. I don't know why they're building stone things up on that shoulder of... Keep something out? Keep something in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think... All right. Because it could date from about the same time as the new landing for the bridge and the railings. Uh So, maybe it was a comprehensive let's keep people from falling to their deaths off these really quite dangerous (laughs) cliffs thing. And up here at the highest point, they were like, you know what? We're serious about this. We're going to build 30-foot walls around the edge of these cliffs so that people won't even realize there is a cliff. So now it's a scenic out view over the Poison River. And so to prevent tourism and tourists, you know, accidentally falling to their deaths as I'm afraid we saw somebody fall to their death while we were up there, right? It's just illustrating the danger. Um, they're going to build these big, ginormous walls, but that didn't really come to anything. So, you know... The, the, the funding was cut. They the lost funding, funding was happened. cut, exactly. Uh, the rest of the community wasn't fully behind the project. Uh, so uh, they uh, they discontinued the wall project. Yeah, as you can see, there's still a well-established footpath up to the Hill of Death. Exactly, right. Yeah, it clearly it clearly remained a tourist attraction even after they began to try to close that off to the public. Uh, then New Angmar came. Under the influence of New Angmar, they probably created this new landing for the bridge. Because the st- stylistically, with those pointy bits, kind of suggesting an iron crown, right? Um, I don't think this is old construction. I think that the stonework in those the pillars supporting the braziers at the top uh, and the more rusty iron around the top of those suggests that these are more modern constructions. Um, oh, yeah. But I think still kind of in the spirit of New Angmar, right? So I think that this was this was done under the influence of New Angmar here. Um, and the new, uh, under also under the influence of New Angmar, the uh, chapel slash mausoleum slash tax collector's bank was bricked up. Um, But, obviously, the primary set piece of the new Angmarim uh, establishment here is the gate, obviously. Uh We're making a new gate, uh, and... That's where the wall many went. Yeah, exactly. They, they, yeah, they said we're discontinuing the safety wall and we're going to reallocate all of those funds to the big, enormous, evil gate, uh, with lighting features uh, that we are going to put up here, flanked by two more of those same ominous-looking braziers um, 
that uh, we see next to the next to the gate. So the, and, but then, then even later than that, this suburb is improbably taken over by good-hearted nomads and rangers who are in resistance to Angmar. Now, I don't know how that came to be, right? I, I have no, I don't remember the plot well enough to know what on earth this ranger is doing there. Like, how did Gwathryn come to be here? Yeah, we had to get past some pretty bad guys to get up here. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's unoccupied to this point, you know, but yeah. like deep in here behind enemy lines, we have an apparently, well, one couldn't call it a thriving community, um, but a community. Not dead yet community. A not dead yet community. There's still evidence of New Angmar all over the place, such as like these banners on either side of this courtyard entrance. And, of course, the banner still with its complement of human skulls uh, here inside, which they have not bothered to take down. Um, this does suggest, as we were saying before, that the current residents want to maintain plausible deniability. Um, that is, that they are good guys. So perhaps, so this is a set of nomads who have convinced the Angmarim, the new Angmarim, in general, that they are pro-new Angmar, right? They're following the forms of respect for the new Angmarim regime and yet are clearly harboring anti-Angmarim sympathies and so therefore being more kindly to friendly dwarves than one might expect and mm -hmm. uh, uh, open to rangers to be looking out over cliff sides. Um, and it, or at least letting him get on with it, uh, even if they are not actively supporting him, which, it, I mean, he's being fairly open, so it looks like he's tolerated here in this community. Um, perhaps that means these people were al actually allied with New Angmar, but have since become disaffected? Maybe that's a better theory. That well, after this all is, their spouses were kidnapped for slaves, I'm That's sure. just it, right. That's just it. So... So they were one of the, a, a, a smaller tribe, right? One of the smaller nomadic communities um, in the wider, like, you know, sort of nation of, um, uh, of, of, the, of the Hillman people who lived up here in Angmar during the hiatus. So that, and when New Angmar is established, they're kind of brought back under the rule of New Angmar. Um, and they... Since they've been positioned here again well behind enemy lines, they're clearly not a rebel, an open rebel outpost. That would be ridiculous. Um, Nor do they have much chance of staging a rebellion. Exactly. So they must have been legitimate allies uh, of Angmar. Hang on, I'm just looking at his clothing. Any clothes on your clothing? Submissive, dude? if not willing. Right, submissive, if not willing. Um, but have recently become more disaffected. They were probably not 100%, you know sold to the cause anyway. As for instance, we don't see any of the Angmarim zealots among them, like the robed... Yeah, and no folks. zealots, no cargoals, no giant monster thingies. Yes, exactly. Um, so they go along with things, but they've been kind of keeping to themselves and sort of maintaining the integrity of their own um, culture, as we can see from the hangings and things in here, right? Like all the evidence here is that within this little side courtyard, they've like 
kept this place as they found it, the main courtyard, right? Because this is where the bad guys pass through the gate on their way up through from, you know, further down and all the enemies who live down there to Karndoom itself, right? So this bridge, this has got to be a highway. You know, people come through here all the time. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've chosen the side alcove over there as the, like, we're maintaining our community over there. And then it was probably some really obnoxious, like, orc captain or somebody who came over and planted this uh, banner here, right, with the skulls. Probably. And was like, you're loyal, right? If you're loyal, bam, like, you know... You should it's awfully have strong to get it in those cobblestones. Right, he must have been a, must have drilled a hole for it. Anyway, so yeah, so um, but they put that up, and then you know, but of course these nomads like they know how to play the game, right? Which is like they can't like openly defy this, so they're like, yeah, no, we yeah. think that that you know a banner with skulls was just what this place was missing, so they leave it there. But whatever, they don't really care. Um, mm-hmm. They're just a truck stop down. Right. But now they, they are, their disaffection against the Angmarim cause, which was always perhaps latent, has now swollen up uh, uh, into open outrage with the slaving uh, efforts of the orcs. The orcs have invaded them one too many times, and now, having encountered the rangers, they have agreed to, like, permit, op- well, not openly, but to... Uh, uh, actively contrive now in conjunction with the enemies of New Angmar, even though yeah. they maintain their official position still. So they're still kind of playing both sides. Um, uh, okay. That would explain. The only thing that it doesn't explain is how did they get invited up here anyway? Okay, no, I've got it. They got invited up here because they were troublemakers. Like, their loyalty was doubted, and so they needed a place to be, so they were they were um, removed from their homelands. This is not their traditional home, of course. This is not, you know, Well, they obvi- are nomads. Right, they're nomads. So they obviously don't live, like, in a stone courtyard. Like, this is not their ancestral home, you know? So they were uprooted from their ancestral home because New Angmar wanted to keep an eye on them, right? And so so New Angmar was like, oh, you're loyal? Then great. We have just the place for you. You guys can be given the great honor of guarding the big old gate, you know, uh, here. They could have had ties to another tribe as well that was loyal to Angmar. Right, exactly. So they're being placed here ostensibly to be given their opportunity to show their, prove their loyalty to Angmar, but also so because they can be kept an eye on here, right? They're, they're contained. There's on probation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's orcs and trolls below them and orcs and trolls above them. So, uh, they're pretty well contained, but now again, they've, they've, uh, uh, though their relationship was always strained. Now it's broken completely and they've, uh, um, and they've, They've gone over and are now helping the resistance as openly as they dare. Okay. I think that fits. Okay. That fit, I love making narratives of locations. I think this all works. Yeah. This is good. Okay. So I think we have, we have made a plausible explanation of, what's it called again? Tarman Sorsa, the suburb of Angmar, uh, the su- suburb of Karndum. And next time... We shall resume next time at the top of the hill 
and look out over Karndoom from a distance before we then uh, go in. Macro to micro. <laughs> yes, we'll go macro to micro and we'll begin exploring it. So, okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Um, we will... Um, We'll resume there next time. Awesome! Thanks, everybody. That was a lot of fun. I think we, uh, I think we solved all the questions. I think we, we have a, <laughs> a, a perfectly plausible explanation for this area yeah. here. I'm awesome. quite happy with that. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, and we look forward to seeing you next week for more Car and Doom adventuring. You know, it, it occurs to me, it's almost time for us to figure out where do we go when we finish Angmar. Yes. I mean, we still have several weeks in Angmar, so it's not like an urgent question, but, you know, it's something to throw out there because I'm not really sure what the answer to that question is. So, well, well, we'd to love see. to hear from you guys, though. Yeah, where would people want to go next? We've covered a lot, but there's still a lot left to come. Um, and, of yep. course, there's a lot of areas in the game that following the narrative is not going to take us to, right? So, um, yeah, you know, we can... Uh, we can go, yeah, Kitrana, we can go to the Misty Mountains, and we could go over the mountains. Thrandall's we could explore. Thrandall's Palace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could explore, or, you know, Northern Mirkwood, the Gladden Fields, um, you know, the orcs, or the, uh, you know, the, 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 the dwarves' fortresses. I've never quested there. I've never been, I mean, so a lot of those places I'd be seeing for the first time uh, as we yeah. explored them. Um, so, uh, Anyway, we could definitely uh, we could definitely go looking over there. Um, the Gotten Fields is kind of interesting, Marielle, considering that although you know the narrative doesn't go to the Gladden Fields, we have, of course, in the Council of Elrond just been talking about the Gladden Fields. So it would be a little bit interesting to examine them, following up uh, the conversations in the Council of Elrond. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah, now of course, Narnian is not nearly high enough level. Uh, to survive there, he would have to be. You guys would have to protect him. We'd have to get folks to protect him there. But uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, get maybe we'll get Wigan now. and Linus. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, and more kind doom next week. Good night, everybody. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.